Uh, hello and welcome to the Intersection of Things, the feminist podcast that still doesn't have that sweet blue apron money. I'm Ruth Kustik Deal. And I'm Marianela Ramos Capello. And we're talking about. Rock stars! Hi, Ruth. Hi. Hi, Marianella. Yeah, it's, you know, we decided that this week we'd just spend the whole thing talking about just pure rock and roll. This is going to be full of really bad puns. I hope not, but this is a serious issue. Yeah. Um, okay, so what we actually mean by rock stars um, is we're kind of talking about heroes. And, well, actually, that's one of our key questions, is our heroes and rock stars the same thing? But... If we start with the idea of hero worship and the kind of thing where we put people on pedestals and we become obsessed with people, we adore them, we buy all of their books, maybe the action figures, and, you know, we tend to, like, start to obsess over people perhaps a little bit too easily. And that has some pitfalls. We all know the phrase, like, never meet your heroes. And that's kind of what we want to talk about a little bit, like some of the problems with hero worship and especially the problems of these hero rock star types um, in relation to the internet, in the tech world and in our own lives. Yeah, um, we really want to talk about this because while this phenomenon is out there everywhere, like we have the Elon Musk Tesla, the Steve Jobs, um, and other people, we tend to see it obviously in our area of work, in digital rights and the internet community. So we wanted to talk about that. Um, It's not a unique phenomenon by all means, but it exists here and we've encountered it. Yeah, I think maybe it would be useful to kind of draw in the word rockstar and like where we're getting this from a little bit. Well, we took it from a brilliant article called No More Rockstars, How to Stop Abuse in Tech Communities by a woman named Lee Honeywell, who was the technology fellow at ACRU's project on speech privacy and technology. And we really just have to read a whole chunk of this piece because it explains exactly what we're talking about and because it's all fire. So... A rock star likes to be the centre of attention. A rock star spends more time speaking at conferences than on their nominal work. A rock star appears in dozens of magazine profiles and never ever tells the journalist to talk to the people who actually did the practical everyday work. A rock star provokes a powerful organisation over minor issues until they crack down on the rock star, giving them underdog status. A rock star never says, I don't deserve the credit for that, it was all the work of... A rock star humble brags about the starry-eyed groupies who want to fuck them. A rock star actually fucks the groupies and brags about that too. A rock star throws temper tantrums until they get what they want. A rock star demands perfect loyalty from everyone around them, but will throw any friend under the bus for the slightest personal advantage. A rock star knows when to turn on the charm and the vulnerability and share their deeply personal stories of trauma and when it's safe to threaten and intimidate. A rock star wrecks hotel rooms, social movements, and lives. Does this sound familiar, listeners? <laughs> Odds are, if you... <laughs> If it does, then you have a rock star in your hands. And if not, then you might be the rock star. Yeah, and it's it's especially a thing that we wanted to talk about in relation to um, the internet because of how often this is the presentation of people who work in startups um, or who work in the tech space, who work in coding or are hackers. Someone who is seen as like um, somewhat of a saviour who does amazing work, but actually in doing these like incredible outputs, they run over people, metaphorically. Yeah. And um, to bring this into context, it's important to note how this idea of the rock star fits really well with the mythological uh, construction of the disruptor, which is really, really um, common in startups and in all of this, like move fast act quickly, release early and often, even if it, your product's not perfect, sort of fast-paced industries that we're moving in. So the idea of the disruptor brings with it this whole, like, I don't know, like a bad boy sort of imagery that gets things done and nobody should get in their way sort of thing. Yeah. Is that a yeah. thing, Ruth? I mean, Facebook's original motto was move fast and break things. Hmm. And, you know, if we look at the impact Facebook has had on society, I mean, in the last few weeks, we've been talking about Cambridge Analytica a lot, um, you know, in, in, in separate conversations. 
And that's a whole massive story about the way in which Facebook allowed people to take huge amounts of data and do what they want to create profiles with them. The the stories about things Facebook has done to disrupt, there we go, people's lives, to make people less safe, they're just new ones all the time. And when they say move fast and break things, sometimes it's a question of when you say things, do you mean people? Mm-hmm. Yep, I know. So let's put it this way. How do we recognize a rock star in our teams? So you have mentioned before how a clear sign, or one of the most common signs, not the clear sign, is how individuals tend to either take credit or accept absolute credit for achieving something. So the quote-unquote sole founder syndrome sort of thing, right? Like... Julian Assange, he is the lead of WikiLeaks and, you know, Steve Jobs, the entire success of Apple is because of him. So we start very quickly looking at larger than life, godly, individualist, narcissistic kind of personas, which distinguish them from simply being people that just do good work. Like not only they do good work, but they're also positioning themselves almost as godly or celebrity or you know a little bit more than just the work itself it's a personality um yeah it's, yeah it's like a hardcore expression of individualism right that this culture of startup and disruption really really celebrates as part of the mythology of it yeah and i think it's something that is possibly just a problem in our like western culture this obsession with like one person has to be responsible for things um and i mean i don't know if it's necessarily just like western culture but our current like neoliberalism that we live under that's so focused on like succeeding or failing as single people um i've been thinking about this a lot because i feel that in our society we we fail as individuals you know we worry about being fired, about being able to look after our families. Like, it feels like the consequences that we face in this world are very, like, consequences on ourselves. And so, on the flip side, I worry that we want rewards as individuals as well. Like, we find it harder to try and reward a group or, like, celebrate the group who made your success. And so, kind of present ourselves as being like, yeah, this was me, like, look at me, I'm a badass. Mm-hmm. founding wikipedia like a boss yeah um well, like we were talking about in the festival episode it's interesting how individualism kind of has become such a core value of where we work even in nonprofits, in terms of like in the movement where we work that it just allows for both good behavior and bad behavior to be reduced to single points of accountability so for example if something goes wrong you get rid of the one person and magically people believe that the problem is solved which is not true it's like systemic problems lead to bullshit um but it also kind of works the other way around like when something goes well it's also attributed to this one single point of success and i think when people attribute all of those quote-unquote wins to a single point of success all we're saying is a set of systemic privileges just happen to express themselves strongly in this one rock star person. Somehow this person is taking all the credit, but there was like a team of 80 women working behind. You know what I mean? It's like a whole set of systemic privileges just give this one person the platform and position it to, or position them, often him, to um, to succeed and to take all the credit. And I think... This celebration of individualism is a blatant erasure of humans as community, as team, as every single point of labor that needs to come together from a bunch of different people to make awesome things happen. Yeah, I mean, I think actually it ties a little bit back into the stuff we talked about with work and like unions and all of that stuff. That if we're so focused on like our solo success or our solo failure, it's much harder to decide that you need to work with the rest of your workplace to organize and ask for better things. Especially if we see ourselves as like moving forward all the time and like rather than staying in one place and being part of like a workplace community, you know, we're always saying like, 
well, I have to drive forward and be the best and I'm going to do this training for myself and everything rather than, like, what can I do to, like, help my community? I don't know, again, I don't know if this is going to make it, but I think it's important to express on the record how hard it is to talk about this because there is, I don't know you, I can only speak for myself, but for me there's always this background fear of the backlash, whether it it's by, you know, people that don't know me or people that I know but that will backlash not directly but like in other ways you know like excluding me from things or just you know just ah it, it is really hard um and it's really hard to just tackle these issues and yeah. literally put them on the record when there is whether a perceived or actual threat of retaliation that's very tangible yeah, I mean, um, even yeah. just like, yeah, even mentioning Julian Assange, like, I, <laughs> yeah. I flinch a little bit just saying his name because I'm waiting for the bros to come at me. Yeah, or the well actuallys. Well, yeah. actually, he wasn't that bad. He was like a rebel rather than just outlaw. <laughs> I am like, I'm so excited about having this conversation and like asking a professional, yes, um, because I feel like I'm constantly coming up against these questions. And one of the most heartbreaking things that I've witnessed is quite explicitly how very quickly rules don't apply. You know, it's like whenever there's someone with so much power or a group of people with a lot of power who are you know, rock stars are really good and, and a lot of bad behavior is is excused under that quote-unquote good output. You can see how all of a sudden, you can have all the code of conduct, all the rules, all the laws even, and they will be bent in your face to to accommodate for that person to continue until it is inevitably too late. And by the time it's too late, it's because really undeniable bigger harm has happened already right but like it's just this whole system that facilitates that for whatever reason and uh, i mean i mean look at who's in the white house obviously but uh you know like laws and rules breaking in in front of you you know what this is the point why i keep coming back to this article over and over again is she has one piece of advice she says, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're asking yourself if someone's benefits outweigh their liabilities, recognize that you've already cost the community more than they can ever give to it and get to work on ejecting them quickly. And I have like reread and thought about that point over and over again. The moment you ask yourself, a moment you're going, how do I weigh this person up, this person's harm and this person's work, then it's already too late. If someone is someone who is toxic in your space, if someone is bullying, any of those things, the moment you start to go like, how can I balance those things? Then they've caused harm and they've caused mm -hmm. harm already that you don't see. Yeah. And I'll make a point here to say very well-intentioned people will bypass a lot of the flags of harm because the, by, the, by the time you're asking that question, I will almost guarantee there is a layer of, um, of people of color, of women, of queers that have been affected in ways that people in power who also tend to be mostly, you know, white and men and but not exclusively... Um, by the time they see the harm, it's already too late, you know? It's almost like layers and layers and layers. You know, we are the buffers. We are, like, we're the first ones to see the damage. We're often not believed, but, you know, by the time we are believed, the damage is already too much. So I think this quote that you mentioned is kind of partially recognizing that as well. But, like, how many people have left digital rights movements and tech movements and tech industries because of this? And they don't even, they won't even tell you why because um, they don't trust you. We were talking earlier about that trying to differentiate between heroes and rock stars and I think a key thing is rock stars are when you start creating exceptions to the rules for that person. I think you can have heroes of people that you look up to for the work that they've done and like their outputs but you don't create a separate category that means that they are immune from criticism. Like, I know that there are people um, that I really look up to 
both people that I know in my life and also people who are academics or writers that I love all their work and I think I'm going to read all their books and download their papers on my read them on my holidays and that's great but like if I found out they were an asshole I wouldn't create an exception I wouldn't say well damn you know I've really enjoyed their articles about net neutrality so I'm I'm just going to not believe anything about this mm-hmm. person like you can you can look up to someone but you have to still remember there, there are no exceptions. Yeah, so basically we have we have a lot of questions and thoughts around both the people who we look up to as heroes within our wider community and how we make sure that those people are not given all the exceptions to the rules and don't uh, abuse their power. And also, how do you deal with these where they're not famous people, which is a lot of what we were talking about originally with people like Julian Assange, but just the people in your workplace who start acting like this, who feel themselves to be the heroes. And we want to talk to... Or the rock stars. Or the rock stars, yeah. We want to talk to an expert. Uh, Dear listeners, we're going to be interviewing someone who's actually working on this, who can talk to this, and who, you know, who has a little bit of experience and whose entire work just circles around creating healthy, diverse communities. And that person just happens to be the very Lee Honeywell, whose piece we've been quoting throughout this little pre-conversation. All right, so we'll leave you with the interview and then we'll check back in. Hello, and thank you so much for coming on. We're really, really excited to have you here. We love the article that you co-wrote, No More Rockstars, and every point is basically fire, like on point. We've quoted and and referenced it quite a bit, not only in this episode, but in other episodes where we're talking about similar issues or patterns. So yeah, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your work to start? Yeah, so my name is Lee Honeywell. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of the anti-harassment technology startup Tall Poppy. I uh, have been doing diversity in tech, inclusion in tech work for the better part, actually just over a decade at this point. And it's been really as important to me a part of my career as my technical career has been. Um, My technical career has been over on the internet security incident response side of the fence. um, And I've done I think pretty cool and important work there too. <laughs> um, doing things like shipping patches for Windows security updates, protecting infrastructure, running a million apps. My most recent sort of industry technical gig was uh, running security incident response at the startup Slack. So what I'm working on now is more, uh, it's sort of like the the intersection of those two things, right? Which makes me excited to be on your podcast. <laughs> Hashtag things you hey. totally did not mean for that one to, to, to work. <laughs> So I'm working on the sort of computer security implications of online harassment as it applies to. um, I'm not sure about that. My uh, (laughs) that was my Alexa waking up. (laughs) Oh, speaking of oh, (laughs) Um, yeah. So the security implications of online harassment um, and building a company that helps other companies protect their employees from online harassment as like an employee benefit. Uh, So I'm pretty excited about working on this stuff full time. It's really been my my sort of passion for nearly a decade is is helping people who are dealing with online harassment, um, hacking, stalking, trolling, doxing, all of those like lovely things that come from the nasty armpits of the internet. That's sort of my background. I think you had asked what inspired the No More Rockstars piece. So it was written in literally like a couple of days after about a week after there was a a serial abuser in the internet freedom slash digital human rights defender community who was outed. I was one of the first people to come forward as a survivor of his abuse. And uh, I co, so I wrote a blog post coming forward. A number of people had come forward anonymously and I was the first person to come forward uh, under my real name, uh, wallet name. Um, And uh, Having had, you know, having seen some of the reactions, um, a lot of people were feeling uh, sort of feelings of despair at dealing with this kind of situation. Like, how did this kind of thing go on for so long? So many people knew, nobody did anything. Well, people had tried many things over the years. But 
I ended up co-authoring this piece, No More Rockstars, with uh, Mary Gardner and Valerie Aurora, who are two longtime collaborators of mine. They co-founded a nonprofit that I was an advisor to called the Ada Initiative, um, which did really pioneering work in getting conferences to have codes of conduct. So from that experience, working with events and conferences, and also doing diversity and inclusion work with companies and organizations, we took some of the lessons learned from that and also the lessons learned from other situations where people had come forward around serial abuse and collected our many years of, of work into, into this one, I think, 4,500 word post. The reactions that we got to it were overall like really, really positive. I've had people come up to me in person at events and thank me for writing it, which is a new experience. I, no, nothing I've written before has, has been as impactful, I think, as, as this post. Um, there were a couple of critical reactions, some of which I thought were horseshit and some of which I thought were like, oh, that's actually like a thing I'll think about um, and consider like potentially reframing some arguments in it. Uh, yeah. I've definitely, like we said at the start, like quoted it a lot. And I think like my favorite bit is the thing that you say about the moment you start weighing up whether or not someone's contributions outweigh the abuse they've had. It's already too late. And I've like brought that up over and over again. And honestly, not just in tech spaces, like I've worked in the NGO sector alignment of the digital rights world. And so I also spend a lot of time with people who work in the charity sector and the same stuff happens there. Like, um, as you know, like it's not unique to the tech space. And I found that like a really powerful conversation to be having when people have been talking about some of the sexual harassment cases in like the London charity sector. Yeah, yeah I've been I've been following the revelations in the, the British NGO sector quite closely because I think there is a lot of a lot of commonality between what's happening there and, and what has been happening even recently in the internet freedom community with a number of very high profile people who quote unquote do good work, but are, you know, harming, <laughs> harming yeah. people in the very field that they're, they're working. And yeah, I think it's that weighing, it's such a devil's bargain, right? Because you're, you're basically saying this person's contributions are more important than the contributions of all the people that they've driven away. And how do you know that? At like, how do you, like, it's not actually possible to make that calculation. It's also deeply, deeply wrong. One of the things that I think I've kind of struggled with, like, drawing this line is the difference between a rock star, as we're talking about it in this context, and a hero. And how can you kind of differentiate between hero worship or just like having someone who is a hero and being wary of someone becoming a rock star who has done good work like how can you head off the becoming of a rock star if that makes sense and how can you differentiate between just having like heroes people that you can look up to and people that you know you're worshiping too much that are gonna cloud your judgment there's nothing about being a hero or doing great work that means that you need to tear down other people and tear down their work. And that's the the fundamental difference between between those two sort of archetypes or personalities. Fundamentally, if if someone is is a hero in their field, they care about the field and they care about the sustainability of the field and the work. And you can't be that if you're sexually harassing new people who are coming into the field, acting as a gatekeeper, all of these things are like, are so deeply harmful, and just harmful to the field, to the work, to the to organizations, that I think it is, I think it is important to sort of distinguish those, those two types. Yeah, another thing that you mentioned in your piece is how rock stars tend to have also like broken other rules, uh, like the Al Capone theory of like they get caught for evading taxes, not so much for, you know, the big, you know, red glaring harm that they're doing in other areas. So um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about your theory, the Al Capone theory of sexual harassment that you mentioned in your piece. Yeah. So uh, sort of glance on this in No More Rockstars, uh, but last summer, Valerie Aurora and I wrote an, a second piece called the, the Al Capone Theory of Sexual Harassment. And we cited a number of different cases where people who were sexual harassers, whether one-off or serial, who were also engaging in other kinds of misconduct, uh, often financial misconduct, 
the example of Mark Hurd, who was accused of sexual harassment while he was CEO of C- CEO of HP, uh, was actually fired for falsifying his expense reports. There's a pattern. There's a pattern of that kind of behavior. And what we've seen with some of the serial predators who've been outed in the internet freedom space um, is that there's similar patterns where it's not just sexual harassment, it's boundary pushing, it's weird, creepy, non-consensual eyedropper bullshit, right? Like there's there's other stuff happening um, that's not just sexual harassment. There's talking up one's work in a way that is not realistic, given the actual quality of one's work, stuff like that. All sorts of patterns of uh, misbehavior and self-aggrandizement. And I think going back to your earlier question about like heroes versus rock stars, a hero doesn't need to like talk smack about their coding prowess. They just write the code, right? (laughs) You know, they, they do the good work that way. And they don't like posture like they're some uber lead hacker slash demigod, whatever. Yeah. So the, the Al Capone theory, there's a couple of different sort of repercussions from this. One of them is if someone reports sexual harassment perpetrated by a particular person, that is a signal that you should go looking for that other stuff. Because whether it's plagiarism or financial misconduct or other kinds of inappropriate boundary pushing, it's probably happening. People people don't break just the one rule of don't sexually harass your, your coworkers, colleagues, or collaborators. That would be a weird thing to be the one thing that you break. Interesting. Yeah, I guess one of the things I want to ask you about is like the power differentials. And one of the things that I've struggled with, and I've witnessed this myself at a conference, where someone who has a lot of power and clout in the community or in the tech world is harassing someone or just as you said like doing something that breaks the rules and even the event organizers are too intimidated by that person's power to do anything about it and similarly even i would say like hr departments the people who are supposed to be in the position to say like let's respond to this don't actually have the power in terms of you know, influence in terms of, you know, being a white male who has social power. How do you deal with that kind of situation where the people who are supposed to hold others to account feel like they don't have the power to do so? So I think um, the the conference organizer question is one that I've been stewing over. I think there's a, the the like, slightly uncharitable part, part of me is like, fuck up, right? Like if you're organizing a conference, if you're organizing an event, that is your job. That is part of your job is to stand up to people being jerks in your space, right? It is your space. You have power in that space. You may not have power in other contexts, but you have the power to eject from someone from your space. You have the power to refuse to have them return to your space. You have the power to not post their conference talks on your YouTube channel, thereby uh, endorsing their content and endorsing them as a speaker to other potential events. You do have that sphere of influence, even if you do not have power in other circumstances. And it is absolutely true that you may face consequences in other circumstances, but I think that is a risk that someone signing up to organize an event needs to to understand that they're taking on. If they want to have that morally congruent feeling of, I am a good and ethical person who cares about the space I'm creating. You don't get to just say, this person is too influential, like, I therefore can't stand up to them. I think that's an abdication of responsibility. I fully acknowledge that there's like structural factors of power that if that conference organizer is a person of color, they're going to feel that differently or experience that differently than if they're like a straight white man who's very powerful in their field. But it is part of the work. One of the reasons that I found your piece to be so awesome is because it draws larger patterns of behavior or social interactions and kind of like explores them as, you know, ways in which harassment happens. And we're wondering if there's anything in the tech sector and the internet sector, be it NGO or people who are developing the tools, that exacerbate uh, these patterns of harmful behavior to occur. And in talking to Ruth about this, we we notice that there seems to be this ideology of disruption, like treating disruption as an ideology, and uh, that almost calls back to that like bad boy, like I'm a rock star here, I want to disrupt the market. This is how we win, right? By shit disturbing, basically. 
And I'm wondering if, uh, I mean, what do you think about this notion of disruption and as an ideology? And is there is there anything that exacerbates these patterns of harmful behavior that you draw on that are particular to this industry? Yeah, I think the ideology of disruption is powerful and potentially dangerous. I think uh, Uber is a really good example where we've seen both at the micro level of individual mostly women, but people of all genders experiencing various kinds of pretty egregious sexual harassment, discrimination, and other like misconduct in the workplace. While this is also a company that is engaging in all sorts of like legal shenanigans, right? Regulatory and otherwise in terms of the actual product that they're building. I don't think those two are unrelated, right? Like there isn't necessarily somebody puppet master like, hey, let's sexually harass all the women working here while we Mm -hmm. also mess around with taxi regulations. Right. But it's when you have that environment of like the rules don't apply to us, those rules Mm -hmm. don't end at the rules like taxi regulation. Right. And then I think, you know, when we wrote this, we wrote this as no more rock stars, how to stop abuse in tech. But obviously, many of the points do apply elsewhere. And it's always sort of a catch-22, right? Because if you write to the thing that you know, which in our case is tech environments, people are like, well, this applies to other things. Like, why didn't you write it for NGOs or whatever? And it's like, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you write it just for the thing that you want, people are that, that you are an expert in, people are like, why didn't you make this more broadly applicable? And if you write the thing that is more broadly applicable, people are like, stay in your lane, Anyways, it's just sort of like a funny catch-22 to be be stuck in. But I think um, from like the, you know, when I think about the NGO sector, it's really important to think about who the sort of gatekeepers are. And a lot of that comes to funders and the connections to funders. And one of the sort of rock star patterns that I don't think we talked about in the No More Rockstars post, but is the way people have like a scarcity mindset specifically about their connections and the introductions. And then that becomes a a kind of gatekeeping that creates a greater power distance between people who are new to the field, people who've been there for a while, um, and sets those people who are new up up to be more vulnerable. Yeah, I think it sort of rings true. I mean, we've talked a lot about the whole idea of like doing good work as being an excuse that means you can get away with a lot of stuff because there's this idea of like, as long as your outcomes are towards like improving society, then you should be forgiven for like a little bit of rule breaking here and there because there's like the bigger picture, the greater good. It's so short sighted and it's so it's, you know, that rule breaking bad boy who only sexually harassed five interns. Who's to say that one of those five interns who was driven from the field wasn't going to be the next great person in that field, right? I think not only is it ethically reprehensible, even if you just think of it from that sort of like brass tacks, like economic argument of like, what is the value of the people you're driving away? That alone should be enough of an argument. Well, and also who can afford to stay, right? Yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because this whole idea of, I probably sourced the article, but recently I saw someone writing about um, how like people of color, particularly women of color, uh, have to develop this quote unquote thick skin Mm -hmm. absolutely in order to stay in in these fields and people are like but why Mm -hmm. you know yeah um not you know that's that's also something that not everybody can afford and that's that's really not necessary like if your stuff is coding that should be your skill Mm -hmm. not you know all of a sudden being able to shut off to abuse and navigating inappropriate interpersonal bullshit like that's that's not a core piece of expertise if you're just trying to write code or at least it shouldn't have to be so one of the other things that i've been hearing about in these discussions is people saying that we need transformative rather than restorative justice but i'm never really entirely sure what is meant by that phrase and i was wondering if you could explain a little bit and also maybe say what you think about it When people talk about transformative and restorative justice, they mean a bunch of different things. Often they mean don't go to the cops, uh, don't participate in like the carceral system. 
I'm actually, so I'm not an expert on transformative or restorative justice, and I'm actually a bit of a skeptic of it because I so often see it being applied in cases of intimate partner violence, sexual abuse, other kinds of gender violence. I got mugged last year walking down the street in San Francisco and nobody was like, well, you shouldn't like have called the cops. Somebody else actually called the cops, but you know, you, you shouldn't have talked to the cops. Like you should have done restorative justice. Cause I got mugged, right? Like somebody physically assaulted me and knocked me down and there were a bunch of witnesses, right? People didn't, didn't be like, Hey, why aren't you working through a restorative justice process? I actually wanted to work through a restorative justice process in that case. Like I would have much preferred that the couple of youths that like knocked me down and took my phone just apologized to me than for them to like go to jail or whatever. But those resources don't actually exist, right? Like I find myself really skeptical when I do hear people as a response to accusations of sexual misconduct or intimate partner violence or other kinds of gender-based violence always jump to transformative and restorative justice because the people saying that aren't usually the ones that are willing to do the work. They just want to end the conversation. And I find that really, really problematic and troubling. In thinking of like, what are solutions that don't involve just kicking people out of a space? There has to be someone who's willing to do the work of like rehabilitating an abuser. And again, the people who are saying, but what about restorative justice? Like, when they are actually the ones willing to step up and do that rehabilitative labor, then that's great. If it's something that the victim wants to participate in, the victim or target or survivor. But I, I really do feel like the vast majority of the time that those conversations are started, that it's not actually in good faith. On the kicking people out thing, it's great to want to participate in systems that don't involve kicking people out. But if you don't have someone signing up to do that labor, you have to still kick the people out. It's not a like magic hand wave that absolves organizers, leaders, uh, managers, et cetera, from the, the, the responsibility for kicking people out. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think it's something that's frustrating because on the one hand, I don't want our world to be a system that revolves around always punishment, you know, and that leads towards this idea of like, you know, mass incarceration and all of that stuff. And you're not actually improving society. But at the same time, I do believe there have to be consequences for your actions. And when it comes to who gets, which I think is the point you were coming to, like, who gets to have the transformative justice the system in which they are like forgiven and talked through and everything it seems that the people who are afforded that second chance that well we're not going to kick you out we're going to like do group therapy instead are always the people who already have a lot of privilege and so they get given this this extra forgiveness and it feels like you know it's it's an unequal application of justice i think is perhaps part of the problem Oh, yeah. And I wonder if that also includes aftercare for whoever had to go through like to be the in the in the victim end of that social interaction or, you know, there definitely have been cases where victims who come forward as whistleblowers in sexual misconduct cases have wanted to pursue a restorative justice approach. But often it's third parties who are uncomfortable with their favorite rock star getting kicked out that are like, well, but what about restorative justice? And that's that's the thing that I think it's worth like being very, very skeptical of. And I think it's also important to understand it is deeply, deeply uncomfortable and unpleasant to kick someone out. It gets at people's real sort of reptile hindbrain. Like, if I am kicked out of the tribe, I will be eaten by lions on the savannah, Right. And to witness someone else being kicked out, like brings up all of those fears, like deep in our guts. And it's important to like recognize that that's that that's a lot of what's happening. Right. It is it's it's it makes people who witness the kicking out feel deeply insecure, whether because they've done some shenanigans themselves that they haven't been caught at yet or just because of that fundamental like fear we all have as human beings who are social animals, that fear of being excluded. Lest I seem un, like without compassion, like I have a lot of compassion, both for people who are having to do the kicking out and also people who are witnessing it because it's tough. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. In our previous conversations, we've already recorded us talking about these issues a little bit. Mm -hmm. We found 
Honestly, that we got really awkward. Like we found it so hard to have a conversation on the record about issues of abuse and rock stars in our community. And it's one of the things that I've been thinking over a lot is perhaps this problem of being seen as a grass or a switch or a telltale, if you call it, mm. that even when you're trying to improve the workplace, you end up being seen as a problem person just for naming the problem. And I think it goes back like a long way. If you look at when you're a kid, like nobody likes a telltale, right? So there's an idea that just like, you know, you're, you're kind of like snitching on someone to a whistleblow. And I, I've, yeah, I'm really struggling with this because, you know, the, the sort of phrase in my mind of like, no one likes a snitch just still comes up, even when I think it's so important that people are able to whistleblow and can be honest and come forward. So I guess I was wondering, like, do you think we need to start ditching terms like telltale earlier in life? Is there something else that we can do to make it so that when people come forward, they can feel comfortable and not feel ashamed i mean i know that this is like literally something that you've done you know you blew the whistle on this story so i guess this is like a very personal question but yeah i wondered if you wanted to say something about like how do we deal with this idea that like telling the truth about problematic people about abusers is still somehow seen as though like the person reporting the problem is the issue i think a lot of it comes down to power right um whistleblowing isn't snitching that's why I like very deliberately use the term whistleblowing when I talk about people who are coming forward about sexual violence um, and sexual misconduct. I think it's it's really important to separate out those two. And I think the when they get conflated, that's that actually like that serves power. That doesn't serve survivors, that doesn't serve communities, that doesn't serve justice. Um, that serves existing systems of power, existing gender oppression. And that's why I, I feel like it's really important. And I, and I sort of keep hammering back on like, this is, this is whistleblowing too. That's a really strong point. Yeah. And I like that because, yeah, I think I've just seen it too many times where people worry, like people I've talked to worry about coming forward. Like nobody's ever called Edward Snowden a snitch. Like, yeah, that would really be bonkers. <laughs> that would be bonkers. And this is exactly the same thing. Obviously like a different scale and a different like level of geopolitical, impact but it is it is the same type of action it is saying like this is an unacceptable action that i have seen that i have witnessed and i'm going to speak out about it it's not like that horrid woman in san francisco calling the cops on the eight-year-old selling water right that is snitching i think that was very helpful to like hear that differentiate and reminding like who gets called a whistleblower like that's another example of power and i really really like that point well, and to kind of uh, continue on the on the thread of power dynamics, we were talking about like what about these environments facilitate abuses of power, and I don't know. I think you you do mention a little bit about how it is impossible basically to have no hierarchies. But one of the things that I do uh, hear a lot is this whole idea of a horizontal structure in organizations, where ideally everybody's kind of on the same level in terms of power. But I'm wondering, you know, what is it about horizontal structures that seem to be, I don't know, held up as this ideal, while at the same time, we're clearly not following them, because there's a lot of power differential there. Like, There's two different approaches that lead people to come to a place of I don't want there to be hierarchy. I want there to be, you know, flat organizations. While they have different intentions, they have the same outcome. One approach is that sort of anarchist ethos of we're all equals, um, we should share power, which I think is is extremely well-meaning. And the other way that people come to that is not necessarily always a conscious one, but wanting to obscure systems of power. I always defer on this topic to um, a, a piece called The Tyranny of Structurelessness that was from like 1970s feminist consciousness raising kind of organizing, but I think is really powerful and relevant to this day. Because the thing that I learned from that piece was just, if you don't have an explicit structure, you still reproduce all of the systems of oppression and systems of power from the outside culture. They're just invisible. Um, one of the things that I, I like to separate out when I'm talking about how I like organizing and um, how I like building cultures and 
systems is separating out the idea of hierarchy from the idea of what's called power distance. So power distance is whether or not you feel comfortable escalating things up the chain or not, whether or not it's socially acceptable within your organization or community to go straight to the boss, whether that boss is a manager or a chapter vice president of your organization or an executive director, like whatever shape that leadership role comes in, a low power distance organization is going to be one where the most junior intern feels comfortable walking up to the CEO and saying, hey, there's this thing that's happening and I think it's kind of not cool. I believe strongly in, in lowering the power distance as much as possible, but I also believe in having clear and transparent lines of sight in terms of how power is distributed and organized within organizations. And so that's why I'm really skeptical of sort of hierarchy lists, organizing, horizontal organizing. And there's been a number of attempts at it in like modern sort of management theory, whether it's like holacracy is, is one of them that's been a bit of a fad in tech. But I think the, the fundamental thing to me that makes an organization that is transparent about power is having those clear lines of responsibility but having a low power distance. Quickly, what uh, what's holacracy? It's like a management fad where there's no managers, but people are organized into circles instead. Oh. Yes. I, <laughs> I got nothing. There's like YouTube videos about it and stuff. But um, wow. uh, mo the most I think Zappos was the most famous for having tried it. I don't think they're doing it anymore. But yeah. We might have to find something for the footnotes to put in here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're like, yeah, fascinating. Yeah. So we'll find you it's, a link. It's not even, I don't think it's even that super, like, it's not super relevant to, like, dwell on, but just to, to say, like, people are trying different forms of more horizontal organizing. It, it's really important in considering any of those to think about how power will still be distributed, even when you're saying that there's no power. Yeah, plus one to that. Yeah, I think that's what I also was thinking about, like right at the start. And I was thinking about events and HR and all of those examples where the sort of the thing on paper is that you have power, but the thing in society is that you don't. Or there are other elements of power that exist that you can't see on paper. Yeah. And often those things are things like how long has the person been at the organization? How um, one of the things that again, that you see in NGOs is who controls the communications with the funders and has the contacts there and prevents other people from, from reaching out directly to the funders. If you want to actually change an organization's culture, how would you go about starting? The place to start is thinking about where you're situated within the organization. If you're the CEO, as someone who's like starting a new company, I get to set all of the culture stuff. That makes it really easy if I want to change things. Um, you know, in collaboration with my co-founder, like we are the organization right now. We get to set the culture. If you're not the, running the show, um, think about what is your what is your sphere of power and influence, right? Are you running a team within the organization that you can make to be a nice little island of good vibes? Or are you an individual contributor who's very junior and you might not actually have a lot of sway to change the organization? One of the frameworks that I like for thinking about this, there's an economist from the 60s named Albert Hirschman who wrote a book called Exit Voice and Loyalty. And the book itself is quite dry, but I highly recommend reading the Wikipedia article. He later added a fourth neglect and I'll sort of go through examples of each of them. When he talks about exit, it's basically leaving, right? You're unhappy with the culture of an organization. You maybe like spend a bit of time trying to change it. And then if it doesn't change, you peace out. Voice is the idea of like actively speaking up and trying to change things using, again, whatever power and influence you have within the organization to try and make change. Loyalty in Hirschman's framework is sucking it up, basically, deciding that whatever your dissatisfaction is, it doesn't rise to the to the level that you're going to want to like leave the organization. And then he later added a fourth um, neglect, which is sucking it up, but also kind of stopping caring about what you're working on. And I think you see you see that a lot with people that sort of like check out of jobs, where they're unhappy with the organization. Maybe they've tried speaking up a little bit and haven't gotten good reception. So they just sort of sit back and say, well, I'm going to keep collecting a paycheck, but I'm not going to, I'm going to stop caring. I'm going to emotionally detach myself from it. 
So I think those four, in addition to thinking of like, what is your position within the organization and how do you have power and influence? Those four are a really helpful rubric to say like, what's my next step, right? Because it's not just there's, you have this sort of nebulous sense of like, I'm unhappy and I want to change things. Or I see my values are like, my values are in conflict with the organization's values. You can either change the organization or you can leave or you can suck it up, right? Like those, you you do have that sort of set of of options. Fascinating. It's like, who who is allowed to leave? Who's allowed to stay or able? And Yeah, no. And that's definitely like, an important aspect to it, right? Is like, there are cases in which you can't leave and thinking about like, what is your coping strategy going to be for the situations where you can't leave? Um, and there's, there's interesting ties there into like trauma, right? Where trauma is a thing that happens when you are experiencing a bad outcome that you can't get away from, right? And uh, like, you know, I've, I've been in the US on a visa for, the better part of seven years, I just got my green card a couple months ago. And I've definitely been in like, bad work situations that I could not leave because I had to get my next job first to transfer my visa. And uh, that's a really important thing to bring up in terms of like, sometimes you can't leave. Yeah. And, and the systems do not facilitate that. There should be no reason why someone's staying in a in a toxic place just because their visa, but it happens. And yeah. Geez, I feel like there's a whole side rant to go on there about uh, when our value as people is just about whether or not we have a job. Mm, yeah, uh, I mean, I think I think that sort of framework applies not just to jobs, but to volunteer organizations, to communities, other places too. What do we do with people who do things that are not illegal, but that are uncomfortable, creepy, not okay? So we talked a little bit about this in the No More Rockstars post, which is sort of watching for smaller boundary violations and and like enforcing your standards um, in those cases before they rise to the level of like misconduct or, as the question said, illegal stuff. I think that's one of the ways that abusive people operate is they check for what they can get away with. And one of the ways you can stop abuse is by not letting them get away with it. And what that actually looks like from a practical level is enforcing boundaries, right? It's saying like, hey, we don't do that here. Hey, that's not okay. Whether you're a leader within the organization or community, um, whether you're an individual or whether you're like setting the actual structure of the organization, I think having those clear boundaries and sticking to them is the way you stop things before they get to that level where it's like actually yeah. illegal. And I and I bet those things have to be crystal clear, like the boundaries have to be there because it's so easy just to hear like, oh, it was just a joke. The, it was just a joke type stuff. It, it, when you start looking for it, when you start looking for it as part of a pattern of like sort of whose comfort is valued over who else's, it becomes a lot more obvious. And it's sort of like what we talked about with the whole kicking people out question, but you have to weigh what is the impact of letting it slide, right? So Captain Awkward is this like advice blog that I really love. <laughs> um, and she often talks about the question, like somebody's doing something that makes me uncomfortable. How do I get them to stop without making anyone else uncomfortable? And the thing is, you're already uncomfortable. You got to put the discomfort back where it belongs, which is the person who's like transgressing, right? So I sometimes use like, a more colorful metaphor of like somebody just took a dump in your living room and like, yeah, everybody's uncomfortable, but someone still was the person who took the dump in the living room. And it's important to be like, Bob, what the hell? Why did you just take a dump in my living room? <laughs> and not doing so is, is the thing where you're like sort of abdicating responsibility for addressing the awkwardness. Whereas the like the superpower is like, noting the awkwardness and putting the awkwardness back where it belongs. Bob, what the hell? I think one of the things that maybe you mentioned when we saw you speaking at RightsCon, and I've certainly seen other people talk about as well, is this idea of like, also record what's going on. Like if you write down these things that seem like jokes or behaviors that make you uncomfortable, it's just like, then don't gaslight yourself like you can look back with the timestamps and go like you can then see that pattern that you were talking about like when you start to see like who is the 
victim of all the jokes. And it's just like, you've got to like keep writing things down. And so you can read it and go, yeah, this happened. This is real. I'm not just being overly sensitive. I think it is really important, that question of sort of not gaslighting yourself. And I left a particularly bad job a few years ago, and I had been very disappointed by one of the people that I worked with um, who turned out to be like sexually harassing a bunch of people. It was this whole, it was this whole thing. And I was worried that I was going to forget how bad things were. So I literally like wrote down, you know, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that. And like every once in a while, I'm like, man, was that job really that bad? And I look back and I'm like, yeah, it actually, it really was. It really was a mess. And yeah, so I think that that sort of record keeping, that sort of um, being your own guiding star, being your own like waypoint is really, really valuable when you're dealing with like messed up situations. We've both been having conversations around these themes for a while and really wanting to talk to someone who has the experience and expertise who's been working around these issues for a long time and you delivered with really wise and thoughtful answers so thank you so much i plus one that you're very welcome this is one of the things that i that i sometimes remind myself when i'm when i'm thinking through like man this stuff is really tough and complicated and there's no clear answers is like yeah, we're actually like sometimes the first people actually confronting this stuff, right? Like, you know, when I think about the stuff that's going on in the the NGO sector in the UK right now, like, holy crap, these are like serious organizations with millions of dollars in funding and they don't know what the hell they're doing either. Like, no wonder a bunch of like hackers and nerds couldn't figure this stuff out for a decade either, Yeah, right? I did a workshop on it at a um, UK campaigning space. Like I, I organized like a sort of safe space to discuss it. And mm-hmm. like, it was kind of amazing to realize that no one else had even done that. Like just had a thing to talk about. Like basically we dis- we discussed a lot about bullying and everyone was saying like, yeah, there'd be no opportunity to just like have a discussion as like people who work in the sector and talk about it. And it was honestly very sad to see like how many people, again, like in major charities had got stories about being bullied. And I I mean, like I chose bullying because I felt like more people had experience of it than of harassment. And like the same kind of idea, if you can't solve bullying, then you definitely can't solve harassment. And if you can't solve harassment, how do you expect to be able to solve like sexual assault in war zones or other like the kinds of issues that these these like big and big serious NGOs are ostensibly dealing with. It doesn't actually require putting up with sexual harassment to do NGO work or to write code. It's not inherent to the work. And anyone who's making excuses for it is distracting from the work. Anyone who's making excuses for sexual harassment or misconduct just shut up you know it's like nothing it doesn't it doesn't require being okay with sexual harassment to write code so for people who are looking into this as like i want to do this for a living this really resonates with me how did you get to where you are right now and you know what decisions what you know what's your origin story Oh, gosh, it was a long and winding path um, that involved dropping out of university a couple of times, uh, spending money on credit cards to go to tech conferences that I couldn't afford, um, crashing on couches and the floors of hotel rooms all over North America. In some ways, my origin story is, is actually a bit of a common one, though. I have farted around with computers since I got one. For the first time, I've always been like mildly obsessed. And I don't remember this story. I don't actually remember this happening. But according to my mom, my mom was like, Lee, why aren't you going to do computer science at university? And I said something along the lines of, "Ah, I don't want to do computer science. I don't want to be trapped behind a computer all day. And when you look at the literature on why women don't go into computer science, that's actually like one of the standard things that women say. (laughs) Um, So that was sort of like, hilarious to to figure out in retrospect. So it took about five years of like wandering around academia and dropping out and getting a like entry level tech job 
at the phone company, Bell Canada, back home um, before I realized, no, actually, this computer stuff is kind of important and what I want to be doing with my life. And I ended up sort of finding my people and finding my place. And the rest is history. Oh, that's so awesome. <laughs> it is always really really good at least for me but I know um, I've had some feedback from people who listen to the podcast just to learn a little bit about you know the origin story because even when you say you know it's a little bit of a traditional one it's always re reassuring for someone out there who's like yes that yeah. you know <laughs> not a linear path yes definitely. awesome I mean, so D, D is for degree right <laughs> it took me it took me 10 years to get through my undergrad and I uh I only ended up actually going back to school to finish it because I wanted um, to have my degree so that I could get a visa to move countries and the visa mm -hmm. required an undergrad degree. So it, um, it was wow. definitely, it was definitely a winding path that was mostly non-academic and mostly self-taught in terms of the like computer security part of the technology field. There is not a lot of well-regarded higher ed. Um, so it does tend to be mostly self-taught. Although they're, like that's changing and there are starting to be a bunch of good programs. But I think it's one of the places where there's like, you know, related to a lot of what we're talking about today, there's a lot of gatekeeping and people saying like, oh, hacking is too hard. Like you shouldn't think, who do you think you are that you, you could be a hacker? Or the sort of expectation that um, underrepresented people are going to like put up with all of the like gross bullshit that happens at hacker cons because that's the way into the field. And like... There's often a sort of pull up the ladder attitude from people in the field of like, well, I had to get sexually harassed at DEF CON 10 times before I got my first hacker job. Like, why Why do you think you should have any better? But anyway, oh, that's, that's me ranting a little bit. That's gross. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, unacceptable. No. Yeah. yeah. And I think like the wheels of change are, are turning slowly, but they are turning. Things I think are, there have been, things are getting better in some cases, there have been some things that are getting worse, but I'm generally cautiously optimistic about the direction of the field and also just excited that there's like other underrepresented people who are are actively promoting like diversity and inclusion within within this corner of the, the tech industry. Yeah, that's yeah. that's nice to hear at least yeah. that things are <laughs> moving forwards. And I think, you know, that the fact that the piece that you wrote is out there and that it's like circulating and lots of people are reading it and discussing it, I think is something like every time I read one of those things, it's like, yes, you can keep citing it and link it to other people and say, look, there's some solid advice in here. So thank you for writing it, uh, co-writing it. You're very welcome. Um, I guess our last question is where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you do and get in touch? Oh, gosh. So um, my personal blog is Hypatia.ca. My Twitter is also Hypatia.ca, but with the dot spelled out like D-O-T. My company website is tallpoppy.io. And we're the same on Twitter, tallpoppy.io, as well as Instagram and Facebook, I guess. But I also wanted to give a final shout out to uh, my co-authors on the piece, um, which were Mary Gardner and Valerie Aurora, who are longtime friends and collaborators who I respect endlessly. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And yes, uh, citations of solidarity. I think it's also one of the things we discussed earlier about how <laughs> important is. citations yeah, definitely, are. Definitely. Definitely. This has been really lovely. You're, you're both great interviewers and I, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was a really good interview. So interesting. What did you take away from it? Oh dear, only one thing? Um, oh, it's so hard to pick. What were your highlights? I really like how Lee mentioned these ideas of horizontal structures usually, or not usually, but can be used to obscure the power relations that exist out there in society anyways. I'm just like, oh my God, we put this idea of like, no rules, no masters in a pedestal without acknowledging that we're not independent from society and that we end up replicating, you know, the sexism, racism, other isms, minus feminism that never, for some reason, never gets replicated into the workplace or into our communities. So I'm thinking a lot about that, about the ideology, same with the ideology of disruption. Like, what do we actually mean when we, when we prefer or 
put these ideas on a pedestal? And what power relations are we preserving? And who's benefiting from this? So what about yeah, what about you? What are you taking? I think as you could possibly tell, I was really taken with this idea of forget trying to think about this question about, you know, who's telling on who. It's completely different. It's whistleblowing. And this the thing that she said about nobody calls Edward Snowden a snitch. And I was like, oh yeah. Like it feels like Wait a second, that's just like one more way of preventing people from whistleblowing. It's by making it feel like you're doing some kind of childish transgression of talking to the teacher about one of your classmates. And yeah. actually, like, that's diminishing what's happening here. It's serious. And I'm like, really going to take that, that comment to heart um, about like who gets to be called a whistleblower. Also, I did also really take a lot from that discussion about the tyranny of structurelessness and the yeah. thing about power distances. I liked the thing about, think about the space that you can influence, like the circle that you're in, if you're in a, a group within management that you can have a positive influence on, you influence that circle. And, you know, sometimes you have to accept that you're not, the manager you're not the executive director but you can make a difference here in this way and i think that was really good and also just the general way of like thinking about what you can and can't change and sometimes actually you do have to accept what you can't change and to step away from a situation and that's completely valid and um and thank you ruth for the awesome conversation again no worries i thought it was really good it was wonderful actually Thanks everyone for listening to The Intersection of Things. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, to rate us, to give us a review on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Yeah, all of our footnotes can be found on HTT, well, you know, the drill, <laughs> theintersectionofthings.com. And you can find us on Twitter at thingsintersect. Oh yeah, and if you want to drop us a line, you can also email us uh, thingsintersect at gmail.com. I'm Ruth Kustik Deal, and you can find me on Twitter at Nessient, N E S I E N T, or on Medium at medium.com slash at Ruth Kustik Deal. And I'm Marianella, you can find me on Twitter at undazed and such. And thanks to David Mark Hucklesby for composing the music. Bye.